0: How about let's go to Mark chapter 10, shall we? How about Mark chapter 10? It's uh, fitting that the narrative slides from the discussion about marriage to children. So we're staying in the family mindset here. And so we're in Mark chapter 10, verse number 13. Mark chapter 10, verse number 13. And they brought young children to him, Jesus, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer or allow the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God." Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. It was a common thing in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day that parents bring their children to some person of authority, in search of a laying on of hands and subsequent blessings. It might have been a priest. It might have been a rabbi. It might have been a a patriarch of their family. Um, But that was a common thing. In fact, you go back to as early as Genesis 48. What did Joseph do as his dad grew older and nearer to death? He brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. By the way, that's a neat story put his hands backwards on them and bothered Joseph. He didn't like it at all. And Jacob, I don't even know if he completely knew what he was doing, but God knew what was going on there. But we'll get into that another time. I'm really kicking around the idea of that being one of our next series is the book of Genesis. We'll see what happens with that. I might have Brother Davies preach that series. Yes. And so what we have here is parents were bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples were rebuking them. They were turning them away in a very harsh, harsh manner. Um, In their defense, see, see, some commentators, some people think that the disciples didn't think that the children were important enough to merit Jesus' time. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that this was more a matter of, of they were trying to serve Jesus' interests. They knew how much this kind of thing tired him out. They knew how valuable his time was, and they were trying to, to help keep people away from him that he might do those things that were most important impactful in the area whether it was miracles or teaching or whatever and these parents bringing their kids to him just just wasn't fitting into that that paradigm but they're gonna we're gonna see they couldn't have been more wrong about their assessment of the situation they were wrong to rebuke these folks they were wrong to turn them away The language of Mark 10 seems to indicate, because of what you see underlying the English, is one of two things were true. Either on this particular day there was just this steady stream of parents bringing their kids to to Jesus and, and the disciples felt like they needed to step in and kind of squash this, But I think the more likely thing that's going on here is that this was a common occurrence that was getting more and more prevalent as Jesus' ministry broadened more and more. The more people knew about him, the more people heard him, the more people saw him, the more people brought their kids to him. I don't think it was just this day. I think that this was a regular occurrence, and the disciples were doing their best to step in and, if I can quote the great law enforcement officer, nip it in the bud. Now, before we get into the meat of it, there's some things we need to look into. So I tell you what, let's pray before we begin the sermon within a sermon, okay? Father, would you help me to teach this and to preach this in the way that most pleases you? Would you use me and help me, Father, and just uh, uh, may I just be completely yielded and moldable in your hands tonight? I want to rightly divide your word of truth. I take this very seriously, Father, as I should. And I pray, God, that you'd help me to be a help to your people. But more than that, move me out of the way. And may our focus be on your word and on the Christ of the word. And may he be lifted up tonight. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. You know, you look at verse number 16, you get a pretty good picture of Jesus' heart for children. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them. You would, you would understand that with Jesus, there's no such thing as a hollow blessing. Theoretically, I could lay my hands on some kid and say, oh, Lord, I just pray you bless him, and I don't, I'm just barely thinking about it. I'm just kind of rattling off the word. Jesus didn't do that. I'm not saying I would either, but Jesus didn't do that. If Jesus blessed you, you're blessed indeed. But I want you to notice something. He didn't just lay his hands on them. He took him up in his arms Don't miss that. You understand that not all of them were clean. Not all of them were, when I say attractive, I don't mean beautiful. I mean the kind of people you'd want to get close to. What did he do? He took them up in his arms. And by the way, you see this through Scripture. Children were drawn to Jesus. I don't believe it was because of his miracles. I don't believe it was because he had some eerie weirdness about them that just kind of drew them to him like zombies. No, children are really good at detecting things in people, good or bad. And I think they were drawn to Jesus because Jesus was the kind of man that they wanted to be around. I'm convinced of this, and I don't believe it does any kind of irreverence to him. I am convinced that Jesus was the man who would give them piggyback rides and make horsey noises and let them pull on his beard and all that. I'm just convinced of that. This idea that he was ever pious and unapproachable, that's just not the Christ of the Scriptures that I see. I see quite the opposite. And so he took them up in his arms, and we get a good picture here of Jesus' heart for children, and I I would be remiss if I didn't use this as an opportunity to remind people what he must think of abortion. It also gives us some insight into what Jesus would think and feel, not only to those who would harm children, obviously we know he's against that, but those who would keep them from him. Look at what he says in verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. You understand that the New Testament was originally written in what was called Koine Greek, which is a very common form of Greek. And like with any language translation, um, you lose some things from one language to another. And because of that, our English Bibles, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, our English Bibles have some what I would call understatements. In fact, that may be a good series to preach, the understatements of Scripture. i tell you, a good woman, when Paul says, what, know you not that your spirit, is, your body is the temple of God? That what is an understatement. It's more along the lines of, you've got to be kidding me. It's an understatement. This here is an understatement. When it says that Jesus was much displeased, it has the idea of anger and indignance. He was indignant at them. He was angry at them. He was mad. Ticked off. Completely under control. Angry for the right reasons, but angry. Why? Why? Because they... We're keeping children from him. My mind has to go somewhere with this. In all the years that we've been working in ministry, myself, my wife, others here, I can say it, Brother Davies can say it, Bethany, having worked bus ministry, can say it. A lot of us can say that we have seen times in life where a child made a decision for Christ and the parents got in the way. I could could pull up images in my mind of kids that we brought in on the buses and as soon as they started living for God, the parents shut it down. Can I just tell you, that makes Jesus indignant. I'll get into that more in a little bit. Uh But the most important truth that we see here involves the matter of faith and specifically a childlike faith. And I've got to be very careful to make sure we understand childlike versus childish. There's a big difference between being childlike and childish. What do we think of when we hear the term childish? Whiny? Always want their way? Selfish? Easily offended? Immature? Are there such things as childish adults? Are there such a thing as childish Christians? Childish preachers. Yeah. Now, we haven't even got to my three. You haven't know, seen the title yet. They used to say, I don't know if it's as true anymore, they used to say that the that Social Security was the third rail of politics. You dare not touch it. Um Well, what I have learned, at least in my experience, is the third rail of preaching is when you at least appear to be telling parents how to bring up their kids. You dare not touch it. I dare. Now, does that mean I sit here as an expert in child-rearing? No. I got two really great kids the Lord has blessed us with, but I recognize that before we're done, both of them—God forbid—both of them could just be off living for the devil. For it, I, 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 I hope and pray not. But I also have to express to you what the Bible teaches about how we bring our children up. Because if I don't, then I am, I am not fulfilling my calling to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And so there's a couple of tough questions that we have to ask ourselves as parents before we even get into the meat of the message. Here's the first one. Verse number 13. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Question number one, parents. What are we doing to bring our child to Jesus? Jesus. to actively bring. It didn't say that they pointed them in the direction and hoped they wandered to him. Bring them to him. Well, preacher, I I wouldn't know how to do that. Well, it's the same way you bring them to anything else. Now, I'm going to list off some things, and I'm not saying they're wrong. But there's a lot of dads that have brought their sons especially, but even daughters, to hunting grounds and fishing grounds or fishing waters. Some favorite sport, some favorite pastime, camping, whatever, racing, some project they like to do, and that's all fine. What does that mean? These are things that I like to do. In fact, I would dare say that I love them and I want to pass them on to my kids. And so I'm going to actively take them to these things and involve myself with them as they get more and more acquainted with these past Wait a minute. I love Jesus. And I want to make sure that he is as much a part of my kids' life as he's been mine. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take them with me to Jesus and introduce them to him. And I'm going to take an active role in making sure that he has the place in their life that he should. But as opposed to these other pastimes, many of us just kind of point him in the direction of Jesus and hope something sticks. Wednesday night's gotten tough. Do you know why some parents don't effectively bring their child to Jesus? Because that would involve them getting close to him too. Now, I'm not trying to beat on Santa, but many of us wouldn't think another thing about taking our kids to Santa and sitting him on that strange lap and then stepping back and looking and taking pictures and smiling, but we don't put nearly that effort into taking them to Jesus. And of the two, there's only one that I'm convinced is real. How readily do we bring our children to Jesus through church involvement? Family altar time. I'm a firm believer that every family ought to take some portion of the day and gather around God's Word and have prayer together. I'm convinced of it. How about spiritual discussion? How often do we sit down with our kids and just talk about Jesus? Well, my kids don't really like to. I don't care what your kids like. Your kids don't know what to like yet. Your kids don't like green beans either, but you make them eat them. Or you should. Hmm. So the first question, what are we doing to bring our children to Jesus? Jesus. Here's the second question, verse number 14. When Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer, allow the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. Are we knowingly or unknowingly hindering our kids from getting closer to Christ? Whether we realize it or not, do we sometimes get in the way? How do we do that? Sometimes it's by occupying their time otherwise. And we don't, maybe we don't even realize we're doing it. But we get so busy doing other things that may be good things that we fail to do the best things. Discouraging decisions. Kid comes home from Sunday school or whatever, and I think God may be calling me to be a missionary. Okay. It, it could be emotional. It could be the, the, the random thinking of a kid that's just soft-hearted, ready to do whatever God wants, or God could be calling him, And we won't know what, which one it is for a while. So what do you do? You never discourage a child from making a decision to get closer to Jesus. Amen. Never. If it's not of God, it'll fade. Yeah. Right. But don't you dare get in the way. God God has been known to move obstacles. Here's one. Now listen. I know how much trouble I'm about to get into. Sometimes we're overprotective. Oh, I'm keenly aware that it's my responsibility as a parent to protect my kids. And if it's a bad situation, I'm going to stand in the way of them getting into that bad situation. Absolutely. But sometimes if we're not careful, we can take that too far and protect them even from the work of the Lord. I'm just unwilling. I'm not ready to let them go, preacher. I'm not ready to let them step into God's next step for their life. All right, well. I hope these parents don't mind. One of them's not even in here, so it's OK. Do you think that those parents, that they're about to send their kids off to college, or in one case already has, do you think they're just jumping up for joy? Do you think they're just excited and I can't wait to change their room into, you know my she-shed or whatever it's going to be? I mean, do you, do you, I can tell you right now, I know for a fact, that's not true with any of them. It's a struggle it's a hard thing. And so I'm going to dis- and none of them have done this, but we've known that this happens that parents discourage them from don't don't go don't go too far now, don't go but if God's called them you got to well, Andy, you just wait till it's your little girl. I know, and I'm going to struggle too, but it makes it no less important that I'm prepared right now to say, God, if you want to carry her to the other side of the earth, she's yours. By the way, if you did that baby dedication, that wasn't just a ceremony. You're supposed to have meant it. And the fact is, My daughter may very well get called into missions or marry some sorry, no good boy that's been called into missions. And I may have to go through what Miss Joan and Brother Stewart have been through. But we dare not, we dare not hinder them from what God has called them to do. And folks, I got to tell you something. God is so much bigger than With County. He's so much bigger than the everyday things that we do here. And he can do so much more with our kids if we just covenant with him that God, no matter how hard it is, I'm going to bring them to you, not keep them from getting to you. So, having said all that, I want you to look at verse 15. Verily, Jesus speaking, truly, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. This is the meat of this passage. Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom can only be reached Through a childlike faith. And it would stand to reason that if you get saved by a childlike faith, then you grow and are able to serve him by maintaining that childlike faith. Would that be a reasonable conclusion? If we got saved by childlike faith, we grow in childlike faith. We serve him in childlike faith. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. The metrics of a childlike faith. The metrics of a childlike faith. What, how do we measure it? How do we identify it? Well, let's, let's look at children. Now, I'm talking about your average, ordinary kid. I'm not talking about Mozart. And I'm not talking about that wicked kid down the street that you just wish would move. I'm talking about your average, ordinary kid. Innocent. Not too tainted by the culture. Yeah, they have a sin nature, but okay. What do we see in children that tell us what a childlike faith is? First of all, they're trusting. Oh, not kids today. They're cynical. They're only cynical because we let them be exposed to the things in the culture that makes them that way. since I've already grabbed the third rail with both hands, can I just tell you, I see no profitable reason for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old to have a Facebook account. What in the world are you trying to expose them to? They're trusting. You know, if you're like me, Too often we need to have all the answers. We've got to understand all that God is doing before we're going to take that step of faith. We've got to get it all. We've got to understand it all. It's got to all line up in my logic. It's got to all be exactly as I think it's supposed to be. It's got to line up and click in and the matrix becomes clear. That's not how God works. Children possess no such burden. They may be inquisitive, but not incredulous. They might ask questions, and that's good. But they just, they just trust. <laughs> you get out in the lake, and dad or mom's standing in the water, and the kid's up on the Up on the the dock there. Run and jump and I'll catch you. Most kids that first time will. Now if you're a dad like my dad and then you go, whoops. You don't trust as much the second time. (laughs) But when you catch them, you're just fulfilling what they already thought about you. I read something one time that really spoke to me. Lord, help me to be the kind of man my kid thinks I am. They trust you. And you know, when you're trusting like that, some would even say gullible. I don't think it goes to that level. But, but can I tell you, when it comes to God, you can be gullible. You can trust anything he says. He's never going to lead you astray. But when you're you're trusting like that, this results in much more joy when you can just trust that God has your best interests at heart instead of always questioning him. When somebody always has to have all the answers and everything has to line up, can I just tell you, that's a miserable way to live. Because you're not always going to have the answers. And if you have to have the answers in order to be happy, guess what? You're not going to be happy Warren Weersby said something. It wasn't even highlighted. I was just reading through this section to see what he had to say about it. And for some reason, this quote just jumped out at me, and it's something I'm going to use frequently from here on out. A child enjoys much but can explain very little. A child enjoys much but can explain very little. Asher loves Nerf gun wars. Loves them. He loves ambushing people. He loves being sneaky. He has no idea how that Nerf gun works. He just knows you put the bullet in, you cock it with whatever mechanism that particular gun has, and you pull the trigger. He couldn't explain to you how any of it works. He just knows... It's funny when I shoot dad. Not as funny when he shoots back, but funny. Top of that trusting thing. I messed up one time. I really wasn't trying to. Shot him right in the eye. I didn't mean to. He wasn't happy. He got over it. He enjoys it a lot, but he can't explain any of it. Can I tell you? I can't explain most of what God's doing in my life, but I'm learning to enjoy it. That's a childlike faith. It's trusting. i tell you what else children are that demonstrate a childlike faith. And by the way, when you got saved, you just trusted. You didn't understand all of it. Probably didn't understand hardly any of it. You just trusted that God meant what he said, right? I got no idea why God would want to save me. I got no idea why he would send his son to die for me. But I trust that what he says is true. Okay. Number two, they're receptive. Most kids, when when untouched by culture, are just sponges. And they have this thirst for knowledge and experience. And they are especially receptive to truth. They lack much of the world's fog that clouds receptivity, don't they? Because when you go through the world, what happens? That part of you that receives truth, it can get cluttered up and clouded up and and grimed up and has has to be wiped clean before you can receive the things of God. Kids are, it takes them a little longer to get clouded up like that and they're very receptive to truth. Statistically, Children are much more likely to trust Christ and follow him than older people. Now, I'm glad that I serve a God that's not bound by statistics. He'll save anybody from one to a hundred. I'm grateful for that. But statistically, kids are much quicker to receive truth. How about us? How receptive are we? A good example of this is the rich young ruler who's actually the next section, uh, verses 17 through 31. He's a good example of this. Jesus gave him absolute truth. And what, what happened? His receptivity was clouded by his possessions. He couldn't receive what Jesus had for him because he had too much stuff. They're receptive. Now, Sometimes it's not a matter of us being receptive, and this isn't one of the points, but sometimes it's a matter of us being responsive. The invitation is a man made thing. I don't always do it, probably won't do it tonight. The invitation is a man made thing, and D.L. Moody made it popular. You don't have to have an invitation in order to be a church that God smiles upon. But it is a very useful thing in a lot of cases. It gives people an opportunity to respond to the truth that's been given to them. And many of us have made great decisions, even salvation decisions, kneeling at at. at the steps or the platform that we call the altar and all that is it just means symbolically we're offering up ourselves at the altar we've made great decisions and thank god for that but how many services have come and gone in which we've been sitting in pews these are just like them and and god's truth has come upon us and we hear it and we know it's true and we know it's meant for us and we just can't find it in us to respond do you have to come to an altar to do business with God? You do not unless He tells you to. Well, I can I can talk to God right here in my pew or at home on my couch. You absolutely can. But if in a given service God says, I want you at that altar, you better go. Because the more we don't respond, the harder it is to respond in the future. I've had I've had services before. where the preacher was winding up and I knew I knew this was for me. And God's Holy Spirit just worked me over. And God says And by the way, this sounds spooky, but I'm telling you it's true. God's Holy Spirit promised me, you need to go to the altar. Yes, Lord, I submit to that. As soon as that altar call starts. Oh no. You go now. Now, well, I don't want to be a distraction. You don't need to worry about that. I'm telling you what I want you to do. If I don't, what have I done? I've disobeyed God. Now, maybe it's not the altar, but maybe you sit in a service and God speaks to you about something. Yeah, I need to work on that. And then you don't. Or I don't. You get caught up in something else. What happens? I've disobeyed God. And if I stop being responsive, it won't be long before I'm not even receptive. It's a frequent thing for Asher to tell my wife he wants to come to the altar. I'll be candid with you. I don't know that great spiritual decisions are being made at the altar. Why do we bring him up there? I'm not getting in the way of him being receptive. When we were at the youth conference, In a particular service, he looks at his mom. He says, I want to go to the altar. I needed to go to the altar. So I said, son, do you want to go to the altar with dad? Okay. So we go walking down to the altar. And we're about to have this beautiful father-son moment. And I'll not say which one it was, but one of the other girls went to the altar too. And and none of them are named Sally, so we'll use Sally. And we get up there, and no sooner have I dropped to my knees than he goes, Hey, Sally, come up here. I'm like, Son, what are you doing? And then we pray together, and he proceeds to walk like a gorilla the whole way back to the seat. Now, some parents might say, see, he doesn't mean it. Don't bother with it. No, I'm going to keep going with him to that altar every time he asks because I am not going to get in the way of God working in his life. And maybe it doesn't mean anything now, but one day it will. One day, it's okay to do things habitually until they become a matter of the heart. My kids are going to brush their teeth until they believe in it. Asher may not have any sense of the good that toothbrush, teeth brushing, tooth teeth. There's a joke there. Teeth brushing does. He may not have any sense of it, but he's going to do it because one day he's going to understand what it means and it's going to matter to him. He may not understand what going to the altar is, but one day he will, and it's going to matter to him. They're receptive. The trusting, what else is childlike faith? Now, those are important, but they're not even the basic element of what Jesus was saying. The most direct and intended meaning behind Jesus saying a childlike faith was not being trustive, was not being receptive, it was being totally and completely dependent. What he meant more than anything else is except whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, what is he saying? Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom in complete and total dependence he shall not enter therein. You will never be saved unless you are totally dependent on Jesus for all of it. Now we've had messages like this before regarding assurance of salvation and how to be saved and all of that. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Almost without exception, people that battle in the matter of their assurance, it's more about them than it is about Jesus. Did I do it right? Did I say it right? Did I really mean it? Did I have enough faith? Listen, listen, listen. All you had to have was that much faith, but put it in the right object, and Jesus will grow that faith. Jesus will use that. I am not saved because of Anything that I did, I am not saved because I believed enough or I said the right prayer or I did it the right way or I really, really meant it. I am saved because I took what I had and said, Jesus, it's all on you. If I don't make it, it's because you didn't get me there. I am completely and totally dependent on you. The first baby that comes to mind is Thea. I don't know if Thea's on the property or not. But I'm pretty positive that Thea didn't get here on her own. Now, maybe she could have walked all the way down here, but I doubt y'all would let her. I don't think that Thea gave any thought to whether or not she could remember how to get to church. Would she be wearing the right thing? Would she be appropriately prepared for the experience No, Thea just trusted that her parents would get her here if she even put that much thought into it. There has to come a point that it stops being about how I feel or what I think or how hard I worked or me, 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 and it all becomes is Jesus enough? Because in the matter of my salvation, I am completely dependent on Jesus for all of it. And yet, well, many preachers over the years have tried to convince people, if you live like this or you act like this, you either were never saved or you're not saved now. Either Jesus did it all or he didn't. Completely dependent on him. By the way, not only will you not be saved, you won't effectively serve him if you're not totally dependent on him for everything. Man, I struggle with this one, y'all. How transparent to be. I do not want this to be a cacophony of, oh preacher, you're crazy, you're not you're a great pastor, and all that. Please don't do that to me, please. But I have seasons in which I am convinced I'm the worst at this job that anybody ever has been. And when I go back and I look at it, it's really egocentric. It's because I didn't do this and I didn't do that and I don't do this and I'm not good enough at that. I didn't study deep enough. I don't know enough about the Greek. I don't have many, as many books in my library as I should, which I don't think I do. But, but I, I don't, you know, all, me, 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 me. And yet when something good happens, what are we quick to say when we're pious? All glory goes to God. He did it all. Wait a minute. Does he do it all or does he not? Because if he does it all, then we need to stop beating ourselves up when something doesn't quote quite the way we think it should, because it's either all on him or it's not. Yeah, do what you can, do what he's called you to do, but at the end of the day, the results are up to him. And yet we've gotten so hooked on this performance based stuff that if I'm not good enough, if I don't measure up, if I don't hit this metric, if I don't do this, I don't No, I am completely dependent on God to grow this church. I am completely dependent on God to bless my sermons. I am completely dependent on God to be the husband and the father that I should be. Does that mean that I don't put forth any effort? Of course not. But at the end of it all, I have to trust Christ to accomplish all of it. Because if it's at all about me, it will fail. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom as a little child, as a trusting, receptive, dependent little child, he shall not enter therein. When I cross over into heaven, here's what I'll be able to say. I heard the word. I believed it and Jesus did it all. Well, what about when you started serving him? I heard the word. I believed it. And Jesus did it all. I see the Family Life Center got built. How did it happen? I heard the word. I believed it. Jesus did it all. Ran at Christian Academy just hit two hundred students. How? We heard the word. We believed it. Jesus did it all. That husband, that wife, that father, that daughter, that mother, that son finally trusted Christ as their Savior. What happened? We heard the word. We believed it. Jesus did it all, and then they heard the word. They believed it, and Jesus did it all. That need we've been praying about, man, I tell you, that job situation, that, that health need, that, 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 that marriage that was, what happened? We heard the word. We believed it. And Jesus did it all. It fits everywhere. And if we can become a church full of people that just hear the word, believe it, and trust Jesus to do it all, we're going to get somewhere. Because these are the metrics of much needed childlike faith.